Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Welcome back to the Boone Podcast, as Brett sits down for part two of his special podcast with MLB analyst, Sean Casey. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Boston, what's going on? I mean, you were, that's, that's one of your alma maters. I mean, these are, yeah. it's the Cubs, Boston, the Yankees. They're never supposed to ha- uh, right. re- rebuild, right? We hear that all right. the time. Uh, yeah. They're kind of, man, you went from Mookie and, and uh, I, I, I don't know. It seems like they're letting everybody go. Everybody's moving on. You still got Devers at third base, their superstar third baseman. Uh, it looks like Ivaldi's going to be gone now. Uh, they're not adding. I don't know what's going on in Boston. I, I almost feel like, well, Heim Bloom's obviously from the uh, Tampa Bay Rays, Andrew Friedman, where they, you know, you, you work at a $65 million payroll and you, you, you do the right trades and you, and you, and you, and you get pitching that nobody wants and you, and you bring them over and you develop and you get them better and you, you draft well, but that's what they do in Tampa. That's not what they do in Boston. In Boston, you're never supposed to be, oh, yeah, they're rebuilding or you're letting a guy like Bogarts walk, who's a, you know, a franchise guy. And now Devers, you know, you got one more year till he walks. And are you willing to give him $350, $400 million to keep him, let him stay? Guy's a superstar player, 26 years old. You know, rakes, I think, I mean, younger than 26, but this guy absolutely rakes. Um, you know, I look at Boston right now and I, and I, and I must say, like, I question, like, what are they doing? Like, and I agree with you. You're, you're the Chicago Cubs, the Yankees, the Red Sox. You're never supposed to be 30 games under 500, or you're never supposed to be just sitting around 500 and be and be and settle for that for a few years. So, for me, I, you know, if I'm a Red Sox fan, I'm definitely scratching my head right now, w- w- trying to see what direction they're going in because it's just doesn't make sense that Bogarts left and now Devers isn't signed, and they're not bringing and they didn't really make any big signs. I mean, they brought in Kenley Jansen. Uh, you know, they, they have a couple of small, they brought in that Yoshida, um, from, uh, Japan. Uh, but I, there's different takes on that too. I mean, I think he got five years, 80 million. And I want to say, I heard some teams at the winter meetings. I talked to a couple of GMs that said we had him at three years, 8 million a year, three for 24. So there's some discrepancy there on what his, his worth is too. So it should be interesting, interesting to see, but yeah, what, how the Red Sox are running right now is definitely something we haven't seen in years. Last thing of the offseason I thought was interesting. It made me smile. Uh, Fred McGriff got in the Hall of Fame. Pretty cool. Oh, dude, I'm so – dude, the day he got in – Booney, the day he got in the Hall of Fame, he got in uh, – you got in, and the next day he came to MLB Network and was on the set with us, me, D. Rowe, uh, and, uh, and Greg Amzinger. It was so cool to see him there because you know and I know, bro. You played against the crime dog. So did I. Played, you know, 493 home runs. Had the 94 strike not happened. Had so many th- different things happen. Had he had seven more homers, he was, he was in right away. You know what I mean? And, and no steroids. He was a middle-of-the-order guy. Justice was served. That's all I can say. Justice was served. They got it right. Unanimous. Fred McGriff, 16 out of 16 votes, finally is in Cooperstown. And that was something I think was an injustice for years. And I'm just so good to see the crime dog finally in Cooperstown. That was very cool. Very cool. All right. We're going to turn the table. Little Sean Casey. Little Sean Casey, (laughs) University of Richmond, 1995, second round pick uh, with the Indians. 
And you go to And if I'm not mistaken, you got to walk me through this. Ninety (laughs) five. The Indians were pretty damn good. That was loaded. I mean, it seems like everybody came out of that Indians organization and had great careers everywhere else because they had they had two, you know, kind of two teams full of all stars. They had to get rid of a lot of you young guys had to be dispersed. Dude, that off that off season when we got drafted in '95, that off season they, you know, Mark Shapiro was the head of the minor league director at the time, and obviously he was. I felt like Mark Shapiro was ten steps ahead of everybody else as far as that stuff goes. But we had like a winter development program that year off season in '95, January. Um, uh, so it would be January of 96. Dude, these are the top 10 prospects that were there. So it was a, it was a prospect, you know, uh, thing, top 10 prospects. It was me, Richie Sexton, Bartolo Colon, Russell Brandon, Danny Graves, Steve Klein, Brian Giles, Enrique Wilson, Anar Diaz, and, you know, somebody else, like maybe Jeremy Burnett, something ridiculous. Those were the top 10 prospects. Eight of us went on to be all-stars with other teams. That's how loaded the Indians were at that time in the big leagues and in the minor leagues. It was incredible. Incredible. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um, 1997 with the Indians. Cup of coffee for for Mr. Casey. You get traded to the Reds. And I and I remember this from the very beginning because, you know, I was with the Reds from 94 uh, through the 98 season. Uh, you know, I was only there one year that you were there, but I remember, right. I remember, and you know, he, this is a guy that was pivotal <laughs> big in your life. Jim Bowden, yes. he would walk around yes. that clubhouse and go, Boone, I'm going to get this Casey kid. And I, you know, as a player, really? at that time, I'm like, I don't know who the hell this Casey kid is. Jim, <laughs> Do your job, whatever. But he would walk around and talk about Sean Casey. I mean, you were his favorite guy. <laughs> Top to bottom, but I remember you came. How was that? I remember at that time, wasn't it a uh, Paul? Didn't you and Paul come at the same time? Yeah, Canerco, dude, me, Canerco? me and Paul Canerco. Canerco yeah, came over. Yeah, because I had Incredible. Canerco on, and I said, yes, yes. Casey beat you out, man. We had to ship you <laughs> off. And we, we took Casey. He was going to be the future of the Reds at first base. <laughs> Oh, incredible. Yeah. Well, we had four first basemen at the time. Jim had traded for me, uh, Canerco, and the big sweat, Dennis Reyes, from the the Dodgers for Jeff Jeff Shaw. And then um, we had Dimitri, who who had just come over from St. Louis. He just traded for Dimitri, too, at the end of 97, 98. And then Eduardo Perez was there, too. We had four first basemen. So, obviously, you know, the, the, something had to give it at some point. And, uh, you know, it was incredible, man. I, I'm just... I'm so grateful that Jim Bowden is, you know, um, you know, has big balls. Basically, is what I'm saying is yeah. he traded his number one starter 14 hours, Dave Verba, before opening day for a prospect who was, you know, who was me. And which is which is crazy. And I'm just so grateful that I was able because I was stuck in Cleveland behind Jim Tomey. I was, you know, I was going nowhere. Jimmy was 26 at the time. He'd already played seven years in the big leagues, just signed a big deal. You know, I was 23 and I had nowhere to go. And me and Richie Sexton both had nowhere to go. And, uh, you know, I'm just so grateful that that Jim, uh, you know, pulled the trigger to trade for me on opening day. Um, and uh, the rest is history. I'm so grateful for that. I asked by the way, Booney, a couple years ago, I did the futures game. Matter of fact, Tommy was the Tommy was the was the manager, and I was his hitting coach, and uh, and Dave Burber was the pitching coach. And I was able to ask Burbs, you know, for for the first time, Burbs, what did you think when when 
you know, you got traded 14 hours before opening day. You're about to be the opening day starter. And, you know, you get traded for a guy like me. He goes, dude, I wasn't really even thinking about the trade. He goes, I was pissed off. I just got my, I just got my apartment and my cable set up. He's like for the season, he's like, I was pissed off. And now I had to make a couple calls like, you know, that I had to move. And, you know, you know what, what a pain in the butt that is to get the cable hooked up. And I was like, Oh my God, that's incredible. That's what Burbs' story was, you know? <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember that time. Cause Bur- Burbs is man, a big teddy bear. Anybody that played yeah. with Dave Burbett know what he is. But Sean Casey, you got it got a first baseman for a long time in Cincinnati. Uh and a great one. Played for Jack McKeon, was your first manager. That was the first year that I played for Jack. Um but that team was, you know, it, it kind of formed. I was gone after the first year, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, you were an all-star for the first time. You hit 332 with 25, 2000, 2000, uh, 2000 you hit 0-1, you're an all-star again, you hit 310. I want to talk about the years when, when I left because I went to Atlanta, San Diego, and then I was back in Seattle. But I remember I was always keeping my eye on Cincinnati. You know, Cincinnati – Places that you play for a while, it, it always kind of keep near and dear to you. You know, Seattle's kind of my number one place, but but I had a lot of good memories and, and a lot of great relationships that I formed when I was a Red for those five years. So you always kind of, you know, when you move on, you still got your eye on, you know, I'm, yeah, and I'm playing for the Mariners, but I still got my eye on the Reds because <laughs> of my time there. It seemed like you guys had a really cool team. If that, yeah. if that, you know, that some personalities and you talked about pokey and you had Lark, who was the captain of that team. Um, a guy that comes up all the time. We had him on the program. I want to see how he I, I want your opinion on how he impacted that clubhouse. That was Greg Vaughn. Oh, man. Well, Booney, you know, I remember when you got traded for Denny Nagel, I believe, in that offseason in 98. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's incredible. You know, I couldn't believe that we traded you. And then Nagel came and he was a big part of that rotation. Vonnie came over with Mark Sweeney from San Diego. And, you know, I've had all these guys on my podcast. You know, I've had Dimitri on. I've had your brother on. I've had Vonnie on, Lark, Cameron, you know, all these guys. And we all go harness. We all go back to that, the, that especially that 99 team when Vonnie came over. And, you know, we we always say it was one of the best years ever. And I think the biggest thing about Vonnie was we had a lot of young guys. Me and your brother, Pokey Reese, Dimitri, we, were a lot of, we had a big mix of veterans and young guys. Vonnie was like, was the presence in that clubhouse, was like such a leader. Um, you know, he... He was a guy that he was the kind of the glue of that clubhouse. I really believe that. And like, you know, he, I think he had 40 or 50 home runs that year. He played, you know, he played when he was banged up at times. Um, and, you know, for me as a young kid to have a guy like him and, you know, Barry Larkin, you know, on those teams, I mean, especially that 99 team was something I'll never, ever forget, man. I'm so even having Vonnie on and seeing him a couple of times out in San Diego, just so grateful that I got a chance to play with him. I got to ask you this. I never got to play for him. Uh, Dad was a bench coach for me in 94 with the Reds under Davey Johnson. Um, Aaron played for him. You played for him. What's 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 Bob Boone like as a skipper? I want to hear it. I was just talking to your brother about this the other day, saying, was there any pressure for you playing with him? And, you know, they rode that fine line, your dad and your brothers, so well. You know, there was never any favoritism. Your dad's the smartest baseball man I've ever been around. Literally, the smart. I was like, at times I'm like, 
how the hell did he think of that bunt defense or how the hell, how did he think of it that way? Or, you know, just the way he looked at the game and your dad, I think being a catcher too, you know, and having a 20 year career and, and, you know, being one of the better catchers of all time, you know, I think, you know, picking his brain, it was just so much fun talking to your dad and he loved it. He was obsessed with it. He'd grab you in the weight room and talk hitting and he would sit, you know, go over Then he'd, they'd grab a couple pitchers and talk about pitch sequence and the catchers and just the way he, you know, the way he went about it. I really believe if your dad had an opportunity to manage a team that had a, that had a lights out staff, he would have won a world series. But I feel like he managed in Kansas city where they were kind of rebuilding, came to Cincinnati. We were, you know, we didn't pay any money. We had no money. And, uh, you know, I feel like your dad was such a smart baseball man. I really believe had he had the right team or the right staff, he would have won some world series. Isn't it, isn't it a tough thing it, when you look yeah. at the, the dynamic of, of being a skipper yeah. and, and the ones that are successful and the ones that are failing, it, it comes down to us, the players, yeah, <laughs> how, right. how good are your players, you know? <laughs> right. and, and I laugh because Joe Torrey, obviously a, a hall of fame manager. And, and I think when you get to that level, you get the horses. Now it's your job to get them over that, that finish line. Uh, there, there is a, there is an art to to being a Hall of Fame manager. You know, there's a combination of, of, of managing egos, managing personalities. But I used to laugh because everybody would say, well, he's a great manager and he stinks. I said, do you see the team that he, that man has right there? <laughs> exactly. I said, how, how great of a manager was Joe Torre when he was in St. Louis? Now we look at Joe Torre, he's in the Hall of Fame. You know, he's got five rings. And Joe Torre was probably always a great manager. But you have to have players. You know, you can't yeah. just... You're not going to take you're not going to take a triple A ball club. And because you're super manager, go win the World Series. It's just not. And and I watched that. I think Aaron's done a great job in New York. And I talked to him time to time. And he's he's a lot. You know, Aaron, very well. He's a yeah. lot like my dad. They're very like minded and they Big grind time. and, and yeah. things bother them. And I just sometimes I try to talk Aaron off the ledge, you know, just try to give him an older brother. I don't want to bug him. But at the same time, I want to say, listen, bud. All you can do is prepare as well as you can. You set yeah. that lineup, the game starts. It's kind of out of your hands, man. You can make <laughs> right. you can make a righty lefty switch at the right time, wrong time, but the computer can do that. Right. I said your job is getting these guys prepared, put them in positions to to give them the best chance to succeed. And once that I always use the national anthem. Once that anthem's over, Man, you just let's go, guys. Come on, get me to the promised land. That's all you can do. Yeah, that's the dude. That's the truth. I, I remember Jim Leland telling me one time because I think Leland should be in Cooperstown and, and is one of the best managers ever. But I remember him telling me one time. He goes, Case. He goes, I got horseship players. I'm a horseship manager. I got great players. I'm a hell of a manager. He goes, if I got if I got uh, Barry Bonds hitting third for me, I'm a hell of a manager. If I got Mike Bonds hitting third for me, I'm a horseship man. I'm a horseship manager. He goes, he goes, I got Miguel Cabrera hitting third for me. I'm a hell of a manager. He goes, I got Steve Cabrera hitting third for me. I'm a horseship manager. And he's, it's true. It's the Jimmys and the Joes, not the X's and O's, especially in the big leagues. I like there's that. Too, there, there's too many games, right? There's too many games, Booney. 162 games. 
you show your true colors. If you don't have pitching over 162 in that marathon, you ain't winning. I don't care how many great hitters you have. I even go back to our Cincinnati days, dude, with me and your brother and Ken and Junior and Dunner and Kearns. And we were loaded, dude. We were loaded. We would, we offensively, we were one, we, we, we led the league in almost every offensive category, but yet we'd be 20 games under 500 because, you know, we had, you know, our pitching was, Poop soup. It was terrible. We had nobody on the mound. You know what I mean? At the end of the- <laughs> you know, it's credible. It, it is amazing. You know, I love that X's nose one. I'm going to, I'm going to coin that phrase. Yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. You know, you're right though. I, I played one year in Atlanta, 1999. I got a little story for you. And we, I think we won a hundred. I, I don't know. Don't quote me on this. One hundred, four hundred, five, something like that. We were a really good team. Ended up going to the World Series. Got beat by the Yankees. But I remember my seat on the in the dugout was right next to Leo Mazzoni. And Leo Mazzoni, <laughs> you know, for those of you out there, uh, Leo is the pitching coach for that famous run uh, that the Braves went on in the nineties. And he would rock back and forth in his chair. And I'd always look at him and I go, Leo, you're making me nervous. You know, I'm trying to get a hit there. And, and I had a good, rela- I always had a good relationship with the pitching coach because they had nothing to say to me. They had no critiques, you know, so me and the pitching coach were always buddy. And I'd say, Leo, how great of a pitching coach. And he used to tell me all the time, he goes, boom, he goes, I'll tell you what. I want to meet the guy that has Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, and is a horseshit pitch. <laughs> he goes, do you think I'm just magic? He goes, look at these guys. And I, you know, he was right. He was now Leo was a really good pitching coach and he was being a little bit, you know, self-deprecating when saying that. Uh, but it is true. You've got the horses. You've got a Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. Makes your job a little bit easier of being that pitching coach. <laughs> when you could run those guys, I remember going into Atlanta and seeing, oh, oh my God. I'm like, we lined up all three. and But in the back end, you had Millwood. Millwood, And yeah. you had Steve Avery, too. Like, he got Avery and Kevin Hurt. But still, you know, they, they, there, were some, there were some good uh, marquee, Jason Marquee. They, they ended up having like the four or five stars were legit. You know, it was ridiculous. Going into Atlanta was just a nightmare facing Smoltz, Glavin, and Maddox at the top three there. But yeah, if you're right, if you're Leo Mazzoni, you could just put that out there like, hey, this guy's a great pitching coach. Yeah, he also has the Jimmys and the Joes too. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and those are the days of, for me, it was USA Today, man. And I, I just keep one eye, one eye open, one eye shut. And I, I turn to who was pitching because I'd start counting it down. Like two weeks, we're playing in Atlanta. And uh, I, I just want to know Who's going to be pitching that, you know, and it was that every fifth day. And man, I'd look at that USA Today and I'd be like, I get to the time that the we were going to be playing them. And I'm like, Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin again. Why, <laughs> how, why, how do I not miss them? It's, uh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> so true. So true. Um, 2000, 2004. You're an all-star again. You hit 324, you hit 320 or 312 and 05. And then you move on to Pittsburgh and Jimmy Leland. What was that like for you with all the, the relationships and, and that city of Cincinnati, especially they loved Sean Casey. You were the mayor there uh, yeah. to have to pick up and, and leave that franchise. Was it, was it tough for you being there from 98 and, and, and after 05 you're, you're headed to Pittsburgh. Uh- 
I was devastated to tell you the truth. I mean, you know, obviously I know now in life that, that, you know, things work out, works out the way it's supposed to work out. You know, the ups and the downs, you know, I always, people will say, Hey, listen, would you trade that thing that happened? And if you say, yeah, then you say, okay, well you have to trade the next 10 years of things that have happened too. Okay. No, I wouldn't trade, you know, things that you think are bad at the time. Uh, I always thought I would play in Cincinnati my whole career. I love the fans there. I love the teammates. We had just bought a house, kiss of death, just bought a house. You know, I'm like, we probably shouldn't do this, you know, bam, you know, next thing you know, we're traded. But, you know, a couple of things here, Booney, like I was devastated initially, but also I was also like fulfilling a dream too, because I was a huge pirate fan growing up and I, all I ever wanted to do was play for the pirates. So to be able to play in Pittsburgh for that one year was just, was incredible for me. And in that same season, I get traded from the pirates who were the worst team and we were the worst team in baseball at the time to the best team in baseball at the time with Leland being the manager in Detroit. It was just incredible. So it was, it was such a big swing for me. It was such, it was really a, uh, it was really a, um, almost like an adult, uh, childhood experience being in the big leagues with the pirates was that really excited, you know, dream come true. And then playing in the big leagues with the tigers, getting traded to play with Leland and having those guys like Van Slyke and McClendon Lamont. I was like, you know, it was like Pittsburgh, uh, you know, Pittsburgh of the, of the East or something like that. It was incredible. So um, that year initially it was tough getting traded from Cincinnati. I'm not going to lie to you. But being with the Pirates and being home, seeing my parents come to the games every day, which was really cool. A lot of friends came and then get traded to Detroit and playing in the World Series in 06 for me was literally a dream come true. Isn't it amazing? Uh, the World Series. I, I got to play in one. I lost. Um, yeah. How fleeting it is and how tough it is yeah. for for. I do have an appreciation every year when, when whoever's winning, whoever wins the world series, I just kind of look on the, you know, I watch the TV coverage and I look, I say, I hope you appreciate this because man, it's hard. You, we, we both, we both played a long time. We both played with a lot of great players that never had that opportunity. Just speak of the world series and how special and how tough it is uh, oh. to win one. Oh man! Even though we ne- we never won yeah. one, either one. Just, of us. Dude, just to get there though, you have an American League. Or you, who'd you go with? With the Braves in that ninety nine. With the season. Braves, yeah. So you have an NL championship ring. I have an AL championship ring ring that I cherish. But I, I love how you I love how you said that because, dude, it's so hard to get there. As I look back at my career, I'm like, I am so great. When I got to the World Series in ninety in uh, two thousand six, it was my ninth year in the big leagues. I didn't think. I didn't think I was going to get there. I'm like, my time is running out. Like I haven't even been to the postseason, let alone the world series. Right. I haven't even been in the postseason yet, you know, which is crazy. Um, and I remember grabbing Verlander when we got to the world series in 06, Ver, it was Verlander's rookie year, him and Curtis Granderson. I grabbed both those guys and I said, Hey, listen, I pulled them aside. I say, listen, do not take this for granted. This is my ninth year in the big leagues. I've never been to the postseason. This is your rookie year. You think this just happens every year. It doesn't. Like it is not easy to get here, and I remember that conversation. But I, but also Booney and I, I know you probably did too, because it was your sixth year in the big leagues um, when you made it. You know, for me, it was like when I was sitting there at Game One in Detroit, and they announced they announced the starting lineup, and I was announced, you know, hitting in that lineup, bro. I knew what I was, I knew what it was all about. I knew, I knew how special it was. I was like, I am going to cherish every single moment of this because I may never be here again. This is absolutely incredible. And, you know, for me, bro, um, you know, having a couple, couple moments, I remember getting a hit in game two. We were down one, nothing to the Cardinals getting hit in game two to put us up three, nothing in game two and the crowd going as, as, 
pandemonium as I've ever felt in my life. And my, you know, my soul was spinning at the time. It was incredible. You know, we won that game. We went to St. Louis. I hit a home run in game four and game five. And I remember coming in, coming home after game four, we lost the game, but it, you know, it didn't matter at that point, just because it was just, it, like I said, it was the dream within the dream, the dream to get to the big leagues. Then you have the dream of being in the world series and you're homering in the world series. I remember hugging my dad after the game in the hotel. It was just such a embrace with him. We both started to cry. Like, can you believe this stuff is happening? Like we're at the World Series, the biggest, the mecca of this game, you know, homering and rounding the bases. And, you know, it just brings you back to when you're a kid in the backyard and, you know, it's Sean Casey, homers in the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> I know you had those moments, Booney. We were like, oh, Brett Boone, homers in the World Series. You know, it's just, it's incredible to look back on. It is cool. It is cool. I, I just have my, you know, I played so many games at Yankee Stadium throughout my career. It was one of my favorite places to play. But I do remember that 99 series. You know how we used to go out before the game and and stretch out on the line, you know, about 15 minutes before oh, we yeah. the field. And I remember running my sprints case. It was game three. I think it was game three. Yeah, it was game three. And I remember running my sprints. And something came over me, like just something in my body was like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, I, 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 I was anxious. Like, you're somewhere pretty freaking special here. Well, and, and in my brain, I'm, I'm trying I'm like I've, I've stretched on this line a lot. I've been here. I played a lot of games at Yankee say, what's the problem, Brett? And it was like. Something came over me and I had to run off the field and calm myself down before the opening pitch. But but, uh, you know, it is <laughs> I, I was, it was because I was at Yankee Stadium. It was the World Series. And, <laughs> yeah, it was a big deal before. So yeah. it, it, it was pretty darn cool. Pretty That's darn awesome. Cool. That's so cool. 2008, uh, you head to Boston at your final year. You do hit 322. You go to the postseason again. Uh, you end up losing to the Rays uh, that year. For you, did you know uh, 08 was going to be your last season? I knew it, man. I knew it. It was my first year. I got, I, I, you know, I think, I think it was proven. So I'm not speaking out of term here, but it was proven that there was collusion that off season. And I just, it was weird. I wasn't getting any offers. And I remember towards the end of January, I called Terry Francona. I'm like, Tito, listen, man, I go, I don't know why I'm not getting any offers to start, but I said, you know, at the end of the day, the only place I'd want to come off the bench as a, you know, as a, as a, as a pinch hitter would be Boston. So, is there any way we could look and, you know, I know you need a lefty off the bench. And the next thing you know, he called Theo. Theo called me. And I, you know, next day I was a Boston Red Sox. Incredible, right? I think it was early February, to tell you the truth. I think it might have been like February 4th. Can't, you know, those pitchers and catchers were two weeks away. Um, but I went to Boston and I really thought to myself, you know, I am so excited to play here. It was, it was such a, it was one of the coolest years of my life playing in Boston and just being a part of that organization. You know, I think as big leaders, we all think about one day playing either in Chicago for the Cubs the Red Sox or the Yankees. And uh, so to get to play in Boston was just really, really cool. But I was off the bench. You know what I mean? I, you know, I, 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 I uh, Euclid, uh, got hurt a, a little bit. Uh, Mike Lowell really hurt his, had hurt his hip, uh, had to have hip surgery. So I got, I got over 200 summer bats. And, you know, I tell you what, Booney, I'm not going to lie to you when I say I was, I came in as a 301 hitter career as a starter. Well, I'm coming in and I'm like, oh my God, I'm off the bench, which I know is not an easy thing to do. I think, you know, off the bench, you're a 230 hitter, you know? So I'm like, if I throw a 230 out there this year and I'm a 299 career hitter because of playing, coming one year off the bench, I'm going to kill somebody. Like, that's how I felt. <laughs> I was like, I was like, so 
I was, I remember, you know, I ended up hitting 322 that year and ended up becoming a 302 hitter. But I was thinking to myself, like during the year, I remember there was a couple times I'd look in the lineup and I wasn't in the lineup and I thought, Oh, good. I, I could, I'm going to enjoy watching the game. And I'd never felt that way. And you know, bro, as well as I do, if you're going to play in the big leagues, you got to be a hundred percent in, not 99%, not 99.5, 100%. You got to be obsessed and in it and ready to grind and push your head underwater. And here we go. And I started to lose that a little bit. And not, you know, and, and not, not that I, I just knew that another year I could I wasn't there I, I in Boston I was like this is incredible to be here I'm, I'm, I'm an off the bench guy but to play with Big Poppy to play with Manny to play with uh for Terry Francona to play with Veritech and Euclid and Pedroia and there were just so many Alex Cora there were so many good players on the team I'm just so grateful looking back but yeah I, I 100% knew that was going to be my last year you mentioned the 302 and and uh I'll tell you and to this day, I, and I know the game changed. We've got to change with the game. Mm. Uh, we're we're going to like some of the things, some of the, some of the new, some of the things in the game in two, uh, 2022, I think, wow, uh, I'm envious. I wish I had that at my fingertips when I was playing, because I could have really used it to my advantage. Some of the things, you know, uh, yeah, you're not, you're, you're going to give and take as life goes on. History will judge each and every generation. Right. But what bothers me a little bit is, is the average has been cheapened. Oh, we're yeah. not looking at that. Uh, just like the RBI has been cheapened. You know, you'd listen to Albert Pujols talk who just who drove in, in, in a career over 2000, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's <laughs> mind numbing to think that he drove in that many runs. But I, when I look at the 300 hitters, you know, I, I I hit 300 a few times in the big leagues, but I try to explain to people. I said, it's one thing to hit 300 a few times. Do you realize how hard it is to hit 300 as a career? And I, I really have a high, uh, I, I really look at a 300. I got a lot of respect for that because I know how hard it is. And and you've got to be a great, great hitter to hit 300. There's not too many of them. Like I said, let alone for a year here and there, but for a career, pretty darn special. What is your, what is your take on that, Chief? Because I look at it this way, Sean. Yeah, on-base percentage is a big part of the game right. today. I get that. But in the ninth inning with the game on the right. line, with the base right. open, that closer on the mound, he's not going to walk you. You're not going to on base your percentage yourself to the victory right. there. I need a guy. I'd rather I want a guy and I prefer that he has a three in front of his average because he's the only guy that's got a chance off the great closer. The great closers aren't going to walk you. They're not going to walk you. You can't be looking for a walk in the ninth inning <laughs> off the great one. Right. right. So, so I just think 300 is 300 and it's still sacred to me. I, I, Booney, I, I love that. I, I, I can't. I, I, I listen. You played the game, dude. You know how hard it is to hit 300 one year, two years, three years. You know, I, I pride myself that I was a career 300 hitter in the big leagues. And I, I when they when, when it gets cheap and like, well, you know, it's more on base percentage. And I go, okay, okay. So go look at the teams even recently, the guys that are win- that are winning the World Series. You know, you the, the top to bottom, even like the Astros. Go back to the Royals. Go back to these teams, the the the, the Dodgers. Um, the Braves. Okay. There's a lot of 300 hitters in those lineups or close to it. Nowadays, a, a 280 is probably a 300 hitter. You know what I mean? Back in our day. So 280, 300, 310. Okay. At the end of the day, what that, what that number shows me is that you hit good pitching. Your 300 hitters hit good pitching. So at the end of the day, I think you don't want to, as a closer, I'm not the guy you want to see. 
You want to see a punch out guy. You know, you want to see a guy that's going to hit 40 home runs, going to hit you 220. You don't want to see me at the end of the game because I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a, a bat together. I'm going to put the barrel on the ball. I'm going to hit the ball hard somewhere. I'm going to give you a fight. You know what I mean? And I, I always think too, like we get so caught up in home runs too. Well, my whole point is this. When are you hitting home runs? Are you hitting? Is are you making it eight? Is are you down eight to one? You make it eight to two in, in the ninth against some some guys just slopping it up there. Like when are your homers? Are you hitting them off good pitching? Are you hitting them in big situations? You know, not to say that, the, but I'm just saying that's another hit for me. When I look at the guys that are hitting 300, I say, listen, that guy hits good pitching. That guy hits closers. That guy hit. That guy hits one and two starters, right? And and what do you see in the postseason? You're going to see the one and two starters. You're going to see the front end relievers, the guys that are the tough guys out of the pen. They're going to see them more often than not. So for me, man, that 300 number still is a big deal for guys, uh, for the, you know, for, for guys that have done it, but also for myself, but also when I look at the game, why, you know, guys are still hitting 300. Freddie Freeman's, you know, Goldschmidt. These guys are still hitting 330. I don't buy the old, oh, the pitching's better here and there. Well, then why are guys still hitting 330, 320? Guys are still doing it. It's just, I think the approach is different nowadays, too, with a lot of the younger guys, how they're brought up in the showcases and stuff like that with this, you know, hey, man, launch angle, get the ball out of the ballpark. All, all, all outs aren't created equal. I'm like, dude, 200 punch outs. Hey, I had, we had, I remember Mike Schmidt coming to the network and you'll appreciate this a few years ago. And we did, I did an interview with him one-on-one and I asked him about striking out. You remember how booed he was in Philadelphia was striking oh, out. Yeah. I think the most he ever struck out was 160. Now, now Dansby Swanson striking out 187, 200 yeah. times and no one's saying anything. So the game's definitely changed, but I don't buy that the average doesn't matter because you're right, Booney. At the end of the day, when the closer comes in with second and third, he's not walking anybody. You're not going to be a good on base guy. You got to actually hit that guy. Yeah, it's it's and, and you make a good point. There's less guys hitting 300, but the great ones still hit 300. Still do. They exactly. still I think what what has changed in recent times is that this that the difference, you know, in our generation, it was the guys, you know, we had the the uh, the Tony Gwens that were hitting 340. But there was another another level the the 330 and the 320 and then the 300 hitter. And then you go to the 280. Then you had the 250 in our day. If you hit 220, you get sent down. You're not. I'll in tell the you, what, you don't have a yeah. uni in your locker. Anymore. <laughs> yeah, you don't have a like, like Gallo just hit 167, got a 12 million dollar deal. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> don't give it. Don't give me go. Don't give me go. <laughs> it's tough to it's watch. Incredible. It's, it's incredible. tough to watch. Yeah, it's just I don't know. I, I, I'm with you. You know, it cracks me up when they say, oh, the pitching so much better. Oh, so the first time in the history of the world that the hitters didn't improve with the pitchers, just the pitchers got better. But the hitters, the hitters suck, right? Yeah, is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, uh, so, it's, true. it's so, silly. so true. It's so silly. So true. 2010, you get the call. Reds Hall of Fame. What's that, call, what's that call like? I know that's, that's your place, yeah. man. That's your place. Incredible, man. Incredible. Because for me, obviously, you know, I, I was thankful I was on the Cooperstown ballot, as I'm sure you were, because I know that that takes, a, uh, that takes a vote, too. And you have to have numbers to get on that. So I was grateful for that. But I knew I wasn't going to Cooperstown. But to go into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, where there's so many incredible players that are in that Hall of Fame. I think there's only 75 to 80 guys in it. But when you start going down the list of like Johnny Bench and your Joe Morgans and Ted Klazuskis and, and, uh, you know, Doggy Perez and Dave Concepcion and Lark and Griffey Jr. And there's some, there's some, there's some Dunner. There's some heavy hitters in that. 
Tom Seaver in that in that uh, Hall of Fame. So when I got that call, man, you know that was my Cooperstown, and uh, I look back, I look back at that going in, getting inducted in in 2012, and I'm just so grateful, Booney. I, I, like you said earlier in the show, just you know, you, you, there's a lot of humble pie when you're done playing. Looking back, I'm just so grateful for my life so grateful for the game of baseball that someone actually invented it and so grateful for the city of Cincinnati in those years going representing them in all-star games representing them on and off the field you know two of my first two sons were born there and now I'm just that, that for me uh the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame um you know was it was a cherry on top of a, of a wonderful life in baseball mayor's office tell me about it tell the fans <laughs> about it where can they check you yeah. out how often can they check you out yeah, uh, uh, thanks, tell me Booney. all about it. Yeah, man, and, and, and uh, I'm going to be sending you a text here soon with no shame to bring you on in the mayor's office. You got it. You got it. I, a- I can, right, I don't have to mind my <laughs> Exactly, so yeah, you know the deal. But I'll tell you uh, like it is. Yeah, you tell it like it is, yeah. So, dude, we've been doing it almost two years now. It's an unbelievable podcast. I do it with my buddy Rich Cinchimino, who um, was at the, uh, who I think is one of the best producers in the world, uh, was at MLB Network with me, and I was so lucky to have him for the for our, my podcast. But, you know, we have a ton of we have we've had a ton of guys on we had your brother on a couple weeks ago mark shapiro on last week um and uh, we have a ton of you know a ton of episodes logged of like the johnny benches jim leland's gary sheffield bagwell berkman you know i look at your podcast Booney, and i you know i feel like it's the standard for getting getting guys on you know the, the history of baseball and uh so that mayor's office podcast we do it every day now though we do an everyday podcast 20 to 30 minutes every day we talk baseball we'll talk about about what's going on maybe in life for our lives really quickly but really it's a baseball podcast every day and, and i usually try and once a week try to bring on a guest too so you you, you and uh you and um and junior are two guys that are coming to me soon <laughs> very cool we'll have, we'll have fun with it uh yeah you know and, and we talked a little bit earlier about you know both of us are asking well, well how's your podcast going? How's your, <laughs> yeah. you know it, it is it's a unique it's a unique little niche uh, that you carve out and and it is fun as you go on you know it, for me you you've been at the network for a while now so you've been on that side of the mic for a while this has kind of been you know my maiden voyage and and learning this side of the microphone interviewing you versus having that microphone in my face getting interviewed which which we do our whole career and it's very simple so for me it's been a learning process i've had there's so many interesting guests. You know what? At the beginning, yeah. I remember when my agent said, I want you to start a podcast. I kind of looked at him like, you shitting me. I <laughs> podcast. But once I got into it and kind of got some guidance and, hey, maybe you should talk like this and, and, and ask this line of question. You know, it became interesting to me. It became I started getting educated and I, and I was learning a little bit and I've actually really enjoyed it. Um interesting guests you know some guys that you, and you know how it is sean you'll have a guest coming up and you'll hey what do you think well i don't know how that's gonna go it might go good and then all of a sudden you come out of a podcast and go wow that was amazing and then you'll i'll get so excited for a guest and i'll finish the podcast and i'll get a you know call hey how was it and it was just yeah it was okay you know? <laughs> yeah it's decent yeah so you never know what's coming um Who's uh, who's been one of your most un- most unique guests? Oh man, There's, so- you know that's a tough question. I understand because yeah. there's so yeah. many. No, that's a good one though. You know who pops right into my head? I like to always you know say stuff that pops. Steve Blass, Steve Blass. Oh. 
I mean, is such an interesting character, you know, to, to, to say the least. His personality is just such a funny guy. But, bro, the stories that Steve Blass was telling about his one-on-ones, you know, going head-to-head with Willie Mays, uh, you know, just g- going down the road, you know, being with Clemente. He, was Clemente. he did the eulogy at Clemente's funeral. You know, like, so that when I was, and I had him at my house because he lives here in Pittsburgh, so we did it, like, with a one mic on my couch. So, like, you know, Steve Blass the guy that pops into my head, like, wow, what a unique, you know, journey that he's had. Uh, Carlos Pena is another guy that I had on that his story was incredible, how his family moved from Dominican when he was, like, 14 or 15. They lived upstairs in his family's uh, his uncle's basement. I mean, not in the attic for, like, for, for a long time. And it's just it really cool. Like, when you start to hear those stories, when you, I know you know, Booney, too. Like, guys that you feel like you know or guys you feel like you're buddies with, when you interview them on your podcast, like, man, I never knew that. That's really cool. Like, so the, that's one of the things I've enjoyed the most about it. Like, really getting to know my buddies in a different way because you have to do research on them and, and, and uh, you know, really, you know, have them talk in a, in a more depth, in-depth way. John Casey. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, man. Awesome. Great career. Uh, check him out on the network. Check him out on the mayor's office podcast, wherever you get your podcast, man. This is a lot of fun. Great catching up with you. Looking forward to coming on, on the mayor's office, yes. giving you some decent stories. Decent. I don't know if I'm that entertaining. <laughs> yeah, uh, you are, buddy. Yeah, you at, are. And as we do each and every Boone podcast, at the end of the podcast, as we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? All right, Brett, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director and producer and the voice of the Boone Podcast. EP executive producer, Rich Herrera. Digital content gets done by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. To follow Brett Boone on social media, he is at the Boone 29 You can follow me on Base on air, B A S S on air. And for all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Take care.